early on, running was always just a way to move my mind. You know, it was not about competition. It was not about racing, although I did race with success. But I think that's where my story is so different from other pro runners. Like, I didn't want to have this idea that I was trying to win Leadville. Like, I never went into it thinking that. I wanted to run for the feeling I felt in the mountains, not for a goal. In 2018, writer and journalist Katie Arnold took the ultra-running community by surprise when she won the Leadville 100. If you haven't heard of Leadville, it's one of the toughest ultra-marathon races in the world. The 100-mile race takes place annually in Colorado. It spans rugged mountain terrain and dirt trails at elevations over 10,000 feet. Participants have 30 hours to run the race, and many don't even cross the finish line in time. But at 46 years old, Katie Arnold completed the course with the seventh fastest woman's time in race history. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Unlike most professional athletes, Katie Arnold didn't compete as a runner in high school or even in college. She grew up running on her own because she realized that moving her body outside helped her creatively and mentally. Then in her late 30s, Katie started ultra running, and she took it pretty seriously. When an opportunity arose to compete in the famous 100-mile race, Katie committed to training for Leadville her way. On the morning of the race, she wrote herself a meaningful reminder on the back of her hand. Smile and Flow is is what I wrote in Sharpie on my hand at probably 2.30 in the morning, you know, in the dark of the kitchen in the rental house where I was staying in Leadville, Colorado, about an hour before the start of the Leadville 100, which was my first 100-mile race. And I do that before races, you know, kind of words that I want to run by. You know, it's not premeditated. I sort of go with what comes out of me in that moment. And in the, you know, hours before Leadville, I wrote those words because I have a pretty unconventional story as an elite runner, I guess. But it was always for me about the pleasure of running. Not every day is pleasurable, right? But the the sort of deep, pure joy that I feel when I move my body through the wilderness or as it was as a child, you know, around my neighborhood. And flow was a philosophy that I wanted to bring to the race. This deep presence in the moment, I like to think of it as like inhabiting the race moment by moment. So the more I smiled and was just joyful and sort of expressing my truest self, the more I flowed and the more I flowed, (laughs) the more I smiled. So it was this really perfect, completely accidental feedback loop that I just got in and I rode for 100 miles. That sounds amazing and almost impossible. How did you get into running and how did you become like the accidental champ? That's so funny you said that. I mean, I didn't put winning Leadville as the focus or as the goal, but I did practice. I've been running up the same mountain in Santa Fe. It's this little mountain called Adelaya. It's probably 2,000 feet of vertical gain. The high point is 9,200 feet. And I've been running up Adelaide once or twice a week for 20-plus years. So that's not an accident, right? That's a practice. And so for people to say, oh, my God, it was such an accident or you came out of nowhere, I just – I kind of laugh at that because I know – 
how diligent I've been in my practice. Well, let me put it this way. You're a little bit of an unlikely runner. Like the people that I think of who do Leadville, they're just 100% sponsored runners now. It seems like that's their job. You have this other job. Yeah. Also, <laughs> I would I would more say like that I'm the natural runner, not the unlikely runner. And I think that my path actually challenges that much more narrow perception of what a pro runner looks like, which is competing in high school, you know, running yourself to the bone in college. You know, my path was really different, but it feels so natural to me. I've discovered very early on when I was seven, six or seven, that when I move my body outside, stories started to flow in my mind. And like I knew I always knew I wanted to be a writer probably from age five or six when I first started reading. So I just discovered it that when I played outside or, you know, like when I shoot baskets in the backyard, that repetitive motion puts your mind in this relaxed state so that your subconscious can bubble up and you have ideas that you don't have when you're trying to think them. And that's when I learned that there was this inextricable link between movement and the imagination. And so early on, running was always just a way to move my mind. You know, it was not about competition. It was not about racing, although I did race, you know, erratically and with success. But I think that's where my story is so different from other pro runners, is that it started from this intrinsic place of like, I want to tell stories and running is how I unlock those stories in my body. For years, Running has been Katie's secret weapon to get those creative juices flowing. She made her career as a writer, and she worked as a managing editor for Outside Magazine for 12 years. Her award-winning work has been featured in the New York Times, Men's Journal, Marie Claire, Runner's World, and more. A lot of Katie's writing talks about how to raise active, adventurous kids. In 2019, she published a memoir called Running Home. In her book, Katie talks about how running became a healing force in her life, especially after she lost her dad. It's hard for me to describe why running helps so well with grief, but it does. I mean, we have such a similar story, although you were so much younger. I was older. I had, you know, just had my second daughter. She was two or three months old, and my father died, not suddenly, but over the course of 10 weeks, which is pretty sudden. And I had this really intense grief response, which I'm sure was a mashup of postpartum and grief and a little bit of that sort of like approaching, you know, midlife existential crisis of like, oh, my God, we are all mortal, right? I was 38. Then you see you have this baby and you're like, I cannot die. Like I, I just brought this creature into the world. And, but yet I know I will because my father just died. And so my grief really came out as intense anxiety that I was dying. And again, like I'd been running up the mountain, Adelaide and Santa Fe, like many years before this happened. But, you know, I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, so there's tons of different healers. And I tried so many of them. And the thing that would heal me was the thing I'd been doing my whole life, which is running. And 
running as an adult has been a way to get into nature faster and farther and deeper than I can walking. So I would go out, and I found that because I was more peaceful and not dying in my mind when I was running, I wanted to elongate that feeling. And so that's sort of why I got into these ultra distances, because, you know, I wanted to make that feeling last. For me, the big piece, I think, for healing was to be in nature. Because when you're out in the wilderness, whether it's big mountains or a canyon or the high desert um, or a forest, is you feel small compared to nature, right, compared to the mountain or the Grand Canyon. And that smallness is not a frightening feeling for me. It's actually a consoling feeling of like, wow, you're part of something much bigger and it can hold your grief. The rhythm of running helped Katie move through her deep sadness and anxiety. She was forced to be present, breathing in the fresh mountain air as her body moved. This was her introduction to ultra running, and it wasn't long before she started to enter races. Katie wasn't expecting to perform so well, but in 2014, she won the Trans Rockies three-day trail run. She went on to win several other 50K and 50-mile races. Then in 2018, she decided to enter a lottery for the Leadville 100. The reason I put my name in the hat for Leadville, like many ultras right now, it's a lottery. There's way more demand than they have spaces. So you have to put your name in the lottery and just like hope to get picked. And I put my name in the Leadville lottery because in my life before our children, I was really big into mountain biking and like while running the whole time. But like I would say mountain biking was more of my sport. And then I had kids and I was like, I cannot maintain a bicycle and like breastfeed my babies at the same time. Like it was too mechanical. I was like, I need something simpler. So I switched, you know, over to running because it was like I just needed shoes and I could go out the door. But that said, like when I was really in my big mountain biking phase, I always wanted to ride the Leadville 100. And I never put my name in the hat. So when I came time to try to do 100, I was like, I'm going to put my name in for Leadville. The other reason was that a few years earlier, I had done the Trans Rockies, which is a three-day stage race. And um, I had won the race, the three days. And it goes over Hope Pass, which is the main you know climb at Leadville. And I'd had this incredible run up Hope Pass at Trans Rockies. Like I was the first woman over the pass. And I just was like, this is my element. Like this suits me. And so those two things are why I signed up for Leadville. And when I got in, I was like – you know, I was so surprised. And I just remember the email came in and I just blurted it out in front of my husband. I'm like, I'm running Leadville, which to me is always a good sign. When you say it out loud, it means you're serious. So my training strategy was that everything counted, like all time on my feet counted toward training. So walking my kids to school, you know, walking the dogs at night, like Someone once told me that 100 miles is all about time on your feet. And so I was like, I'm just going to log as much time as I can on my feet every day and condition myself to run when I'm tired. And so that was kind of my plan. And, you know, coaching my kids lacrosse counted, like riding my bike to the river to meditate counted. And so it was this very inclusive training plan. It was also really fun. It was just what I love to do in the world. For me, and I've always been unconventional in that, like, I've been self-coached and I kind of make up my own plan and I don't have a structured plan. I just sort of wake up each day and be like, 
where do I see myself running or how do I want to feel when I run? And I follow that. And so I don't run with a watch. I don't really keep track of my pace, generally speaking, or I never track my miles. And I couldn't tell you my weekly mileage leading up to Leadville. But what I did was I did like a bunch of training races. Like I knew I had to hit certain distances. So I did a a DIY 50K, like it was my own run that I did was 30 miles. And then I did a 50-mile race in May. And then I did a 100K race in June. And then I did the Leadville training camp, which I highly recommend because you get on like 60 miles of the course. And so I had a couple of amazing days at that camp where I was like, oh, this is the feeling I need, right? That's when I think I knew I was going to do really well because I had these just incredible flowing days where I was like tapping into the mountain's energy. And I felt like the mountains have this energy that's way bigger than mine. And I'll run out of energy way before the mountains do. So I just need to flow with the mountains and ride their energy. So that was sort of the origin of that flow feeling. But I didn't start like trying to figure out my pace until like maybe a week out, (laughs) honestly, when I was like, I need to tell my pacers when to expect me. And I would just tabulate like what I thought I was running. I had checked my watch a few times, but when I added it up, it came to like 21 hours. And only then did I look at like the previous finishes. And I was like, oftentimes that was like a top one or two finish. But it was really important to me that I didn't put the cart before the horse or whatever. Like I didn't want to have this idea that I was trying to win Leadville. Like I never went into it thinking that. I wanted to run for the feeling I felt in the mountains, not for a goal. But when I added it up, I was like, I potentially could be quite fast. Katie's training plan might sound unconventional, but it totally worked. When race day finally came, Katie ran an average pace of 11 minutes and 53 seconds per mile, which was one of the fastest paces in Leadville 100 history. When we come back, Katie talks about the nitty gritty of moving into first place at Leadville and her secret to healing from injuries. Professional athlete and writer Katie Arnold ran a 100-mile race in just under 20 hours. Even though she was moving at a record-winning speed, 20 hours is a long time to run. She had to eat and drink on the trail and stop for bathroom breaks, and to stay awake, she drank caffeinated soda. The Leadville 100 course itself is no joke. There are steep inclines, rocky footing, and once it gets dark, runners have to use headlamps to navigate the difficult terrain. For Katie, this was her first time running 100 miles all at once. First of all, you'd never run 100 miles before you did Leadville? No. I'd run several hundred Ks, so that's 62 miles. So everything after 62 miles was totally unknown to me. How did you do it? Like, what did you eat? What did you say to yourself? How did you keep going? That's crazy. Yeah, I I had, I had, did it in many ways. I had a lot of help. So I had great pacers at Leadville. You can have someone running with you, or in 2018 at least, from mile 50 back. It's an out-and-back course. So the second half of the course. So I had great 
mental and moral support from my pacers. That's huge. I have a very good historically like strong stomach for running. I'm finding wood to knock on. Very rarely do I have GI problems. And so I fuel like religiously 300 to 350 calories an hour at that elevation. So that keeps my energy steady. And I eat goo. I mean, I, I straight up eat the gel. And it's like goes right into my blood system. I mean, I feel like it just – if I, I know I need to eat if I start to trip a little, get spacey. Um, if my energy starts to go down, like I'm like, why am I out here? I take a gel and within like three minutes, I'm kind of revived. So I ate constantly. I hydrated really well. I had trained during training to eat a lot of different things. So I say I ate the gels. That's what I carried was goo. But when I come to an aid station, I'd learned, I trained at other races to like eat the ramen or to eat watermelon or to like look at the table and decide what I wanted and to get calories that way. And my amazing pacer, Wes, who had run Leadville before and Hard Rock 100, had ga- gave me great advice. He's like, the race doesn't even begin till mile 63, which happens to be exactly the distance I'd run previously. But he said mile 63 because there's like this long, gradual climb out of the Twin Lakes aid station. And that was amazing advice because I went out real casual, like not fast because I didn't want to go out fast, you know, and um, I deliberately didn't want to know where I was in the in the pack. And I at probably about mile 15, I was climbing this hill and this photographer was there like lying in the grass, like capturing like the shot. And he's like, oh, you're in second place for females. And I, my first response was like, oh, no, like it's too soon. And I don't also want to know that. Like I wanted to stay in the flow and the smile. And I was like, second place already, shoot. And but I right then and there I made this conscious decision. That, again, this was like this mindset thing of like, I'm not changing anything. Like nothing changes. I'm not trying to catch up to her. I'm just doing my own thing, smile and flow. And that continued the whole way. People will be like, She's three minutes up. You're closing on her, you know. And, and I was like, We're just doing our thing. Like and I just smile and thank them and be like, You're awesome. But like nothing's changing. And it was just ironic though that like I actually caught up and moved into first place at mile sixty-three, which is where the quote unquote race began. At 46 years old, Katie won Leadville. It was a massive physical challenge, but it also required mental conditioning and stamina. Over a decade ago, Katie started practicing Zen Buddhist meditation. Through meditating, she learned mindset techniques like focusing on her breath and acknowledging distracting thoughts. Katie uses those same lessons when she's racing and when she's facing obstacles too, like injuries. I know you've also had injuries, like every runner has them. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with like when the thing that grounds you and is your meditation and is your mental health? Yeah. It contributes to, it's not is your mental health, but it's, it's sort of medicine for your soul. Very much. When, when that's gone, what do you do? It's hard. I mean, as a competitive elite athlete, like, I've learned that it's okay to be injured, and that's just part of the life I'm choosing. 
And as an outdoor athlete, like that should actually predate the sort of like competitive elite ultra runner, right? Like I've always been an outdoor athlete. But it's really hard when it happens. I'm taking some deep breaths because I just am getting over an injury. I broke my ankle about six weeks ago running down the mountain and I was wearing spikes and I was in a boot for five weeks. Very short term, you know, like in the scheme of things, it's it's not big, but it did take a mental toll. I think the main thing is to know that it's not forever, right? And then, and this is what I learned, you know, after I had this big accident five years ago, that you have to get into this healing mindset. Like as an athlete, our bodies are so strong and we think of our bodies as our biggest tool and our best asset, but it's really our minds that are even stronger than our bodies. And to get into that mental headspace of healing yourself and believing that you're healing yourself. So the accident I'm talking about was a whitewater rafting accident. And my husband and I do a lot of river trips and we're always on water. It's also medicine for my soul. And this was in 2016. And we went to the middle fork of the Salmon River up in Idaho, which is like 100 rapids and 100 miles and big rapids, like a lot of class four rapids. And this was a private trip. I was celebrating our 10th anniversary, and on the second mile, we flipped on a rock. Fluke, fluke. My husband's an amazing oarsman, but we flipped, and I fell out of the boat and hurt my knee. And I had no idea what I'd done, but I turned out I'd broken it. But I didn't know this, and I stayed on the river for six days in the wilderness, right, because it— It was easier to go downstream than to hike three miles back upstream with, you know, a hurt knee. And I got home, and when the doctor told me it was broken, I was in disbelief. Like, I mean, I knew I had a high pain threshold, but I couldn't believe it was broken. And he's like, you need surgery, and you're going to be, you know, on crutches for 14 weeks. And then I saw the surgeon, and he's like, you know, if I were you, I would never run again. And that's that, like, cinematic moment that, like, his words, like, echo, like, run again, 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 you know. And it's like I was just gutted, as you would imagine. And I, you know, sort of just took his story as true, right? Like, I took his version that he knew that that was going to be my story. And he did the surgery, and I started to recover, and I suddenly realized, like, that's his story, but it does not have to be mine, And I took ownership and sort of authority over what my story was going to be. And and this, again, like I – no one really told me this like in healing. But what I learned during that process was like simple things. But like how you talk to yourself really matters. And and so I never called it my broken leg. I called it my healing leg. And the minute I got out of surgery, I was healing. Right. Not only was my leg healing, like passive voice, but I'm healing my leg. And so it was just the way I spoke to myself. And, you know, as a writer, and I'm sure you can appreciate this, like I keep notebooks. You might call them a journal or whatever. But in my notebooks, I would write these affirmations of like, I'm healing my leg quickly and completely. And people would want to talk about the accident and I would tell them about it. But then I was like, let me tell you how I'm healing. And so I just reframed it from this brokenness to this healing wholeness. I just had to be very careful about like the language I used 
to myself and what other people, right? Because when you have a broken leg, people are always like, oh, my God. Or they look at you in the brace and they want to tell you their horror stories. And you have to, like, you have to not let that in. And that was a practice. And, you know, meditation helped with that visualization. Like maybe four or five days out from surgery, my friend brought over a bike trainer and my husband set up my little cruiser town bike on it because I don't have like a stationary bike or a road bike or anything fancy. And he took the left pedal off and I would one-legged spin in my backyard on my mint green cruiser. You know, to your point, like you do want to try to do things to simulate that the energy you get from running. So I would spin in the backyard, but I would listen to podcasts. And I listened to like every ultra running podcast there was. And I then would go and write in my notebook like visualizations of me running 100 miles or me running through the mountains. And again, it was just sort of intuitive. Like I didn't, I didn't read a book on like how to heal yourself. So one morning I woke up when my leg was broken and I was like, I need range, like that sense of distance, I need to get out of my backyard and off this one-legged bicycle. And so I just drove to the trailhead with my crutches and crutched up this little sandy arroyo, like a quarter mile. But that was like so good for my soul. Oh, I've taken so much from this. I can relate to having someone in a white coat or like a figure of authority in the medical field giving me news that was like so awful. And then deciding, like, okay, that's that's your story. The mind is so powerful. So, like, a- after you won Leadville, I mean, that had to feel amazing, really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's the most badass race you could win, and you won it. And you're a writer, and like, it's not your full time job to win races like that. So, it's it's pretty badass. Did that change your relationship with running in any way? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, yes. First of all, it just sort of like allowed – I'm just taking a deep breath because it actually was like a deep breath for me of like, oh, wait, like this thing I've been doing all my life and I felt is very natural and it's like a natural expression of myself and my mind and it's like a natural thing my body knows how to do and does it well. Like this was confirmation like not that I needed, but I think I must have because it just it just showed me that I belonged and that what I was doing was my path. I think it just made me realize that I didn't have to question myself, right? We all have that very, some of us, you know, loud imposter syndrome voice in our head of like, oh, you're not a real runner because you are not sponsored or you're 46 years old or, you know, you didn't follow the path that everyone does, which is like training their brains out in their 20s. And, you know, I I think with some wistfulness of like, boy, I wonder if I had started competing in my 20s, like what a badass I would have been. And then I think in the same, you know, thought, I'm like, well, I'm glad I didn't because my body is still so healthy and able to go so far. And I don't know, like if I'd been, you know, just pounding it all those years. But I think it just finally, like that imposter voice can be loud in my head at times, just for various reasons, because I did follow a different path. And this was like, oh, actually, like, Katie, you've, you've known what you're doing the whole time. Like, your way is different, but it works. 
There's a common thread through Katie's approach to healing, to training, and to getting outside. Time and time again, she trusts her body and her mind to work together. Running has helped her dream up stories and move through grief. She follows her own intuition to heal her body, to improve in her sport, and to live out her wildest dreams. Katie Arnold, thank you so much for coming on Wild Ideas Worth Living. Your perspective as an outdoor athlete inspires me to look at life, at age, at injury, at competition, and especially at writing through a new lens. So thank you so much for this great conversation. Katie leads running and writing retreats, something I would love to go to called Running Home Retreats. You can find out about upcoming retreats and events on her website, katiearnold.net. You can also get Katie's book, Running Home, on her website or anywhere books are sold. If you want to see what else Katie's up to, check out her Instagram at katiearnold. That's K-A-T-I-E-A-R-N-O-L-D. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas of Puddle Creative. Our senior producer is Chelsea Davis, and our associate producer is Jenny Barber. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we love it when you follow the show, when you rate it, and when you review it wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.